You know, oftentimes when I look at the landscape of 21st century Christianity, I'll be honest, a lot of times my heart is really heavy when I see it, just how many churches on this planet are just so unhealthy. Many churches in attempt to draw crowds of people, they have made church and they have made worship itself really more about us, about people more so than about a holy God. And, and the result is that you have people that attend church services week after week, year after year, decade after decade, and their lives don't change. It's heartbreaking to see people that you would think after so many years of following Jesus, of being involved in church, that that you would see them begin to have victory and to live lives that were truly different. And sometimes you think, no, well, they're, they're changing. But the question is, really? Is there profound, soul-satisfying transformation happening? And in many cases, we sadly have to say no. But the question is, why? Why is Because in many churches across this planet, the God that's being proclaimed, that is being preached about week after week, is just too small. Where you have worship gatherings, including the preaching, that does not lead to change. And the reason is that our lives are changed only when we see the stunning glory of a resurrected King Jesus. If you do not see the glory of God, if you don't get even but a glimpse of his indescribable majesty, if your heart is not overcome by who he is, if your heart is too overcome by the things under the sun, your life won't change. It is encountering Jesus, seeing him with the eyes of faith, that is the only reality that can transform a dead sinner into a living worshiper who is passionate for Jesus, and that just results in life change. See, when we come face to face with Jesus, what happens is we respond with repentance. That's the natural response to being in the presence of God is, oh, woe is me. It's repentance and then greater dependence on him. And so, sadly, when you have churches where instead of standing in awe of a glorious and majestic God, instead you have church leaders that want to use entertainment to gain more consumers, what you have is what you're seeing in far too many churches across the land. Where you have people that are not desperate for God. They're not. They want what God can do for them. So they want the benefits and they want the blessings. They want what God can provide for them, but they're not actually desperate and hungry for Jesus himself. And so what they have is they have a religion that is a means to the end. And so they want Jesus because he is a means to get them what they really want. 
So what they want is something else, whether it's a spouse or a better job or more money or a different nationality or whatever it is. What they want is something else, and so they think Jesus can do that for them. And so religion becomes a means to the other end, and God is not the end himself. The end ought to be just experiencing, standing in awe of the living God, having him. That is the end. Ecclesiastes 5, as we continue in our series, we're asking the question, is it all meaningless? We have seen in the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes that everything under the sun without Jesus is meaningless and does not satisfy. In chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, now today we're going to see that even religion is meaningless. Even religion in and of itself does not bring purpose and joy and meaning. Under the sun in this broken and cursed world, only Jesus can satisfy your soul's deepest thirst and longings. Not even religious activity can satisfy your soul and cannot change your heart. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Let's read that together as we see what God has for us. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and the fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe, what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. These verses are actually describing worship, particularly verse 1. But this whole section is describing worship. You see, as humans, we are always worshiping. We were made to worship. And so you can't not worship. It's not Possible. We're always going to be obsessed with, preoccupied with something. So our hearts are always looking to find this sense of peace, of worth, meaning, hope, joy. We're always worshiping something that our life is revolving around to find our purpose in. So we're always doing this. Verse 1 describes Jewish temple worship. That's the context here. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So when you go to the temple to offer sacrifices to worship. Now, the sacrifices are always done in silence. So there was a lot of, of music and there was a very lively worship. But when they were, they were doing the sacrifice, the priest, it was quiet. But as soon as the sacrifice was completed, the silence was then broken by reading Torah, by reading the law of Moses. They would read the Bible, and then the priest would then explain what he just read. 
And so what you have is silence when there's the worship being done at first, and then the word would come after. So that's why he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen. So he says, draw near to God. You go into his presence. He says, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. See, right here is the key to worship. Worship begins with revelation. He says, listen, hear from God. And so that's where worship begins, with God revealing who he is in his word. So it begins with revelation, and then it ends with our response. We then, we listen to God's word, and then we respond with obedience. We respond with lives that honor him. So God is revealed, and then we respond to him with hearts that are drawing near to him and obey. Sacrifices without repentance and without obedience is simply empty religion. Empty. So religious activity, doing all the things that look good, that look religious in church, but with a heart that doesn't treasure Jesus, that doesn't, doesn't trust Jesus, is empty. It's meaningless. First Samuel 15, 22 has the same theme from here in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. It says, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? So he's asking, does God find joy in sacrifices? He says, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. And so God is more pleased with obedience than with the ritual. The whole point is your heart before God. And this points straight to Messiah, points to Jesus. So here's the main idea from Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Religion is empty and meaningless without Jesus. Religion, apart from Jesus being at the center, really is empty and is meaningless. And we're going to see in this text three religious activities that we can substitute for a heart that longs for God himself. And so we can all be guilty of this. We can all do these things, and subtly, or maybe not so subtly, these are actually replacing a heart that just beats for Jesus. And so the first one, so these are marks of meaningless religion. The first one is empty giving. So empty giving is, is one common mark that we see here in verse 1 of meaningless, empty religious activity. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So people here are called here to approach God with caution. Guard your steps. See, God loves us and wants us to be near, to be close to him. But we are sinful Rebels that have broken his law and offended him personally. We have broken that relationship with God. And so we are now separated from him. Which is why Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They were cast out of paradise and cast out of God's presence. Because of their sin. God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. 
if we, sinful people, would be in God's presence, we would be consumed by Him. He's like a holy fire. But God still loves us and wants us to be close to Him. So what did God do? He had them build first tabernacle in the wilderness and then temple. And what you had was this represented the presence of God. The reason why they had a tabernacle and then later the temple was because it was where God resided. He was right there with his people. And in, in the innermost most part of the temple, the most holy place, that symbolized a return to Eden, where God was right there with his people near to them. But God's people were still sinful. And so only the high priest could enter in, and only once a year, and with blood, with a sacrifice. And so this was representing this whole sacrificial system in the temple was holy God living with sinful man. But there had to be a price that was paid for the sin. Shedding of blood was required because that is the penalty for sin. And so all of these sacrifices in the temple were done in faith with a repentant heart that just desired to be close, to have a relationship with God. And God made a way through the sacrifices. And so when, when they would go and give their sacrifices to God, that was worship. That's how they were expressing their worship. It was the way that they showed that they valued God and valued His glory more than anything else under the sun. And so it was meant to be an expression of faith. And of course, we know that this points to Messiah, Jesus, who is the final sacrifice, who paid the ultimate price for us. But even in the Old Testament, ancient Israel, it was still an act of faith that, that would lead to obedience. But here's the problem. Many people would offer these sacrifices, and they would forget the purpose. They would forget that it was about being near to God, and the price had to be paid and approaching God with reverence and with repentance. Instead, it says the sacrifice of fools, and he calls this evil. So what is this foolish sacrificing, this foolish worship that is called evil? Well, it's this formalism. It's a manipulation. Foolish sacrifice is empty giving. It's when we do religious things, like we give of our time. So we sacrifice in that sense. We give of our time. We'll even give to serve on, on the ministry team. We will give of our money and put it in the offering bag. And so we're, we're, we're giving of ourselves. But our motivation for the sacrifice or our motivation Forgiving is to get something back from God. So it's either just a, a religious ritual that you're just supposed to do because that's what you do on Fridays, or it's manipulation, saying, I want to get something back from God. So it's not out of love for Him. And so a fool believes that they can go to church, put a few dirhams in the offering bag, and somehow that offering canceled their sin. And they think, oh, I, I, I went to church. 
I put some offering in, in the bag. God must be so impressed with me that I've gotten back in church. Now my life is going to be good. I'm serving God now. I even put a tip in the offering bag. Man, blessings are now going to flow because God's so happy with me that I'm, I'm sacrificing. And so to think that being in church and giving me sacrifices, this, this, this external appearance of worship, that they don't actually need to repent and trust in Jesus and ask him to help them change. So you have many churchgoers that think God owes them a problem-free life and a big bank account and every pleasure under the sun simply because they go to church. It's like that 40-year-old single man who's desperate for a wife and he can't find one. He says, I know the solution. I need to get in church. So he starts attending worship gatherings. He even joins a home group. He even joins a ministry team. He starts greeting and then he runs a PowerPoint, and he's involved with people, and, and he is serving, doing all of this for God. And then two years later, still no wife. And then he gets so angry with God. He says, God, I have been serving you. I've been giving to you. I've been putting money in the offering. I come early to set up every Friday. Where's my wife? What's going on here? There are so many people, sadly, that I know that just live disappointed with their life. To just, they look at their life at whatever age they may be, whether young or some older, and they're just so disappointed that their life has not turned out the way they thought or wanted or hoped. And they live bitter and frustrated. And in my observations, people like that, like it could very well be us, if we're honest, they seem to have some common threads. One is they seem to see that God is very far away. People that live very disappointed with their lives see God as remote, as up there, as the creator, all-powerful. They acknowledge that, but he's out there. He's not here. He's not near in their life. And they don't sense God's presence, and they feel very far from him. He's out there, but he's not here with my problems in my real life. Another theme that I've observed is people that live disappointed like that, they, they tend to see God as very harsh and very judgmental. He's just going to zap you. So you better walk on this straight and narrow because he'll get you. So you, you better be good. You need good behavior and maintain the appearances and be religious. You go to church, make sure you put some money in the bag. Because if you don't, God's not going to be happy with you, and then he's, he's going to make life miserable for you. So you live life trying to appease this deity that's out to get you. And maybe you wouldn't say it out loud like this, not so brash like I'm exaggerating here in the moment. But if you're honest with yourself, you, maybe you kind of think this way subtly. 
and he's out there or he isn't really for you. And so the result is that you see your life and it's not turning out the way you thought and you just live frustrated. And you think, where's my prize? What's going on? I'm serving you, Jesus. But you see, we sacrifice. We worship God. We follow Jesus. Not so that we can get from him. We don't serve Jesus to get anything from him. We follow Jesus because we get Jesus. That's why we follow him, because we get him. Jesus is the prize. He is the goal. He is our purpose. He is our joy. He is our everything. I mean, we sing it. If I have you, I have everything. And without you, I have nothing. Do we believe it? We sing it. Do we really believe it? We follow him for him. And he's come near. See, Jesus said, you tear down the temple, and in three days it will be rebuilt. Talking about his body. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is every reality in the Old Testament of going to the house of God. Jesus fulfills all of it. And Jesus is the one who brings us into the presence of God and gives us his spirit. So he is near and he is not judging you because he already judged Jesus in your place. And so you are received and approved, and he loves you, and he treasures you. You don't have to earn it. It's already yours. He already loves you. So you don't give to get back. You give out of love because he loved you first. It's all about relationship. So what is our response to this glorious, overwhelming mercy of the God who came near? We live our lives as a living sacrifice. This is the call for followers of Jesus, a living sacrifice. All of your life is to be worshipped before God. Your thoughts, desires, words, actions, all of it. Do you find yourself wanting to get from God more than just wanting God himself? Will you draw near, as it says in verse 1? Draw near and listen. Draw near and see him. Hear his word. Hear his voice. Draw near. And his spirit will change your heart. Man, empty religion, empty giving is slavery. Because you never know when you've given enough. And you know you can't do enough. And so the gospel frees us of this. Frees us, it liberates us from this slavery, this tyranny. And it gives us hearts that are generous or we want to give of our money and our time and our lives. Because our greatest treasure is Jesus. And so the first mark of meaningless religion is empty giving. Second one is empty prayer. We saw it in verse 2, empty prayer. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So he's talking about prayer. He's talking about empty prayers here in verse 2. 
there are people that try to manipulate God through their prayers. They think if they pray enough and with the right words, then God will give them what it is that they want. And so some people think that you have to pray a certain way. You have to be really emotional or really intense. And then if, if you pray like that in that way, then God's going to hear your prayer. If, if you pray too calmly, then God's not going to hear your prayer. Others say, no, 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 no. You have to pray very casually and call God your daddy. Or Jesus, your, your homeboy. And as long as you're really casual and very relational, then he's going to hear your prayer. Some say, no, 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 no. Prayer has to be very formal. And so these are people that, that you know them. They speak normal English, you know, 21st century English. But when they pray, they break into 16th century King James Version. And it's like, what's going on? Like, you, you talk normal most of the time. But then when you pray, it's thy, thou art. It's like, what? No, just talk, like, be normal. It's not your intensity or your volume or your casualness or formality. It's not a formula. Relationship. Prayer is communing with God. It's enjoying his presence. It's talking to him. Matthew 6, 7 and 8, Jesus says, when you pray, he didn't say if, when. Assumption is followers will pray. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. So when you pray, it doesn't matter how you say it. What matters is your heart. God loves you. He knows your needs. And he knows what's best for you. The point of prayer is not to have a formula where you can be in control and manipulate God. No, it's the opposite. Prayer is being in a position of humble dependence. We acknowledge that we're dependent on God. And so empty prayer is a self-centered prayer. Where we pray for what we want selfishly rather than prayer should be praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should pray for the glory of God to be displayed in our lives. Pray for more obedience. Pray for strength to overcome our challenges. Pray for healing. We pour our hearts out to Him. We, we pray but for God's will and God's glory. And in prayer, we encounter God Himself. So do you pray? If you don't spend time in prayer, then your heart's not going to change. Your heart's going to slowly drift away from the God that you love. And you'll find yourself wanting idols under the sun more than Jesus who is beyond. And so when you pray, what is your motivation? Do you simply want to know Jesus more, or do you want what he can give to you more? Number three, marks of meaningless religion is empty promises. Number three, empty promises. Verses four through six describe making vows. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. 
that's coming right from here in Ecclesiastes verses 4 through 6 of chapter 5. And so he says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. How many people make empty promises to God? If you give me a wife, then I will serve you. If you give me a promotion, I'll tithe. If you will heal me, then I'll serve in the children's area. Like, I'll go all out. I'll do whatever. Just do this for me that I want or that I'm convinced that I need, and then I'll, I'll do this for you. So we, we like, try to, like, barter or, you know, bargain with God and haggle. Okay, God, you do this for me, and I'll do this for you. Are you serious? But we do. We think this way, and we make these promises, but then in the end, Oftentimes, God is so good, and he actually hears our prayers, and then he gives us a promotion, or he gives us the wife, he gives us, and then what about your promise? Usually, you already forgot you made that promise. Or how many times have you been sitting in the worship service, and, and you're hearing God's word proclaimed, and the Spirit speaks to you, and you feel convicted, and you know, okay, I need to change. And in that moment, you know it. You need to join a home group or start tithing. Or, or you need to go reconcile with that brother or sister. You need to get help with the porn addiction. You need, you need and you know you do, and you need it. And, and not, we're like, God, I'm, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to get the help. I'm going to do it. And that's around 11.20 a.m. when you're having those thoughts. But then by by 12.20 p.m., you're at Deerfield's Mall having lunch, and you already forgot. You're like, that promise is gone. You're, you already forgot you even made that promise to God. He says, keep your word. Empty promises to God is a classic form of just meaningless religion. It doesn't change your soul, and it just leaves you worse than how you started. So we have empty prayers, empty promises, empty giving in this text. Remember, religion is empty and meaningless without Jesus. These are ways in this text that shows us that we can want what God can do for us more than we want God himself. And without being desperate for Jesus, you won't be desperate to change. Let me ask you a hard question. Do you want to change? I like it. Maybe you think, well, that's a silly question, Pastor. Of course I want to change. Don't be too quick to answer that question. Because oftentimes, if we're honest, we actually don't want to change. Because that change is going to be hard. It's going to take repentance, transparency, accountability. And maybe you know if you change, then you're not going to have any excuse. If you just stay disappointed with life, everyone knows that you're just a grump. Everyone knows that you're disappointed with life, and so that gives you the excuse to be mean or bitter or to indulge in that pet sin 
And so you know if I change, I have to give that up. And so deep down inside, you really want to hold on to that crutch, and you don't want to lean on Jesus. You don't actually want to change. Do you want to change? For real. Are you desperate to live a life that displays the glory of God that is marked by faithfulness and obedience to God? Do you want to live for him on mission? Do you really want that? Empty religion won't get you there. Checking off religious boxes to impress other people is not going to do it. It's just going to enslave you further. So what is the solution for empty religion? I have a question here on the screens. What is the solution for empty religion? Verse 7 tells us. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. See, Solomon, as God's Spirit inspired him, ends this passage by mentioning the fantasy. It's a dream of thinking that we can use our words to somehow get what we want from God. He's like, wake up! This is a fantasy. What is a solution? He says it. God is the one you must fear. Fear God. That is the solution to empty religion. We fear God. When you read Ecclesiastes and also Proverbs written by the same author, Solomon, oftentimes called wisdom literature, it includes Job as well. When you're you're talking about this genre in the Bible, when you see the phrase fear God or fear of God, the Lord, it's describing worship. That's what it's describing. And so it's fearing God is coming before him, but with humility and awe and reverence and also trust. So we approach God with honor and with respect, fear him, but we also approach God, we worship him with confidence and with boldness. Why? Because we are accepted by him because Jesus has made a way for us to come near. So let's just be honest as we wrap up and close here. Honest with ourselves. Do you look at your life sometimes and do you see parts of it that are just really great? You probably do. But do you see parts in your life that, man, are just really hard or disappointing that just leave you troubled or just depressed? What is the solution for your troubled life? You can make a list. Oh, the solution is I have better kids that obey me more. Right, kids in the room? Or no, no, no. If I had better parents that understood me better. Or no, if I had a better husband or a better wife or if I had a better job or a better villa or a better car or if I had a better whatever and we make a list of what we think if I had this better these relationships these things then that would end my troubled life here's the truth no it won't because here's the solution to your troubled life your soul is starving for the greatness of God 
that's what you're most hungry for. You are starving for the greatness and the glory of God. Now, you might not think that's the solution. You may have a list of other things that you think you want more, but it's not what your soul is most hungry and thirsty for. Any other solution besides the greatness of God is going to be brief and is going to be shallow. And deep inside, your soul is crying out, show me your glory. That's what your soul wants most, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he is the solution. The solution is to depend on God. We depend on him. He must be our rescue and our refuge and our hope. Don't you dare settle for empty religion. Don't settle for it. Don't be enslaved by it. It will not lead to greater obedience or more holiness, more of God's presence. It can't do that. So what motivates us to obedience? Relationship with God and with others. Love God, love others. Sin clouds the presence of God. And then sin breaks our love and our are being intimate with other people. Religion can't change you. Only Jesus, the Spirit of God, can do that. When he was dying, he cried out, it is finished. It's done. Salvation is accomplished. We can enter in. There's no more wall of separation. We can know God and enjoy him and be transformed by his Spirit. It's done. And the cross proves that God loves you. I'll ask you again, I asked it earlier, are you trying to earn the love of God? Are you trying to do, do, and do, which really that's just doo-doo, and it stinks for a reason, because it can't satisfy your soul. You can't earn his mercy, it's free. Will you believe the truth that God loves you, treasures you, accepts you? Will you truly believe these truths that you are worth loving? God wants you. Religion apart from Jesus is empty and meaningless. Will we be a people that resolve to depend on him? A church that treasures and trusts Jesus so that people can see our lives and hear our words and join us in worshiping the only one who is worthy. Pray with me. Father, this morning, we are thankful that you speak to us and that you have made yourself known. As you are revealed, we want to respond to you with worship. And so this morning, we ask, now as we enter into communion, that we would sense your presence and that we would be a people who live for your glory alone. And we pray in the name of Jesus.